Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. <laughs> what is that that you're doing? <laughs> I'm, seeing if I can, I'm seeing if I can do the looms. Not really. <laughs> I could do a turkey. Anyway, welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and with me, as usual, is Matthew Stockton, my buddy. How are you, Matthew? You are a turkey. I am a turkey. <laughs> turkey was a, a nickname that we had for each other at home. So okay. My mom would call me a turkey sometimes. So I'm good. I'm You're good. good. I'm 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 ramped up today. You're ramped up. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's what I wrote. Yeah, I, when uh, this morning it's like let's do this specific time because my brain is just ramping up. <laughs> mean, meanwhile, mine was ramped up at four a.m. Of course it was. Oh my goodness, I don't know how you do it. I really don't. I guess it's just habit, and you're a morning person. Yeah, More. that's all it is. Morning people. Ew. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's get the show on the road. Let's do that. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to Dark Poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. The Chowchilla, California school bus hijacking and kidnapping, a notorious case that occurred in 1976, involved the abduction of an entire school bus carrying 26 children, 
19 girls and 7 boys ages 5 to 14, and their driver, Frank Edward Ed Ray, who was 55. It was orchestrated by three young men from affluent families. Brothers, Richard Schoenfeld, 22, James Schoenfeld, 24, and their friend, Frederick Newhall Woods, the fourth, also 24. The crime was motivated by their desire for ransom money and as a cure for boredom. The kidnappers hid the bus and took its occupants to a buried truck trailer in a quarry in Livermore, California, intending to demand $5 million for their release. Remarkably led by Ed Ray and Michael Marshall, 14, one of the older children, the survivors managed to escape without any ransom being paid. Even though they all made it out alive, the victims suffered psychological scars that changed their lives and persist to the present day. This was the largest kidnapping in U.S. history, and it has a Canadian connection. After their hostages escaped, all three kidnappers went into hiding, but were eventually apprehended and convicted. Although one of the suspects, the mastermind behind the kidnapping, Frederick Woods, fled to Vancouver, British Columbia before being apprehended by the RCMP. This is Dark Poutine Episode 303, Terror on the School Bus, The Chowchilla Kidnapping. The city's name, Chowchilla, is an anglicized version of Chowchilla, which refers to an indigenous American Yokuts group historically residing in and around Madeira County, California. This historical aspect is still honored throughout Chowchilla through art, school mascots, and attractions that draw tourists' attention. The city is a substantial agricultural hub about 40 miles north of Fresno in the heart of California. Overshadowed by more prominent cities in the San Francisco Bay Area, Chowchilla remained relatively unnoticed except by locals or those traveling through on their way to the coast. Unlike the picturesque coastal towns or bustling tech hubs like Silicon Valley, Chowchilla has preserved its small-town essence, especially when the tech industry and housing markets were booming nearby. Chowchilla has grown significantly from its humble beginnings with a population exceeding 18,000 and hosting multiple prisons and school districts. In the 1970s, the town's population was under 5,000, contributing to the horror of the events on July 15, 1976. The entire country still buzzing from the recent bicentennial celebrations on the 4th of July was shocked back to reality by that day's happenings. Under 5,000. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a small town. Mm-hmm. When I was a little kid on a bus, you know, in my town was 7,500 people. If there's 26 of us and the driver, that would have had a huge impact, not just nationally in terms of the news, but like that's devastating for a small town. Devastating, yeah. Yeah. Chowchilla was no different than many other communities as during the summer break from school to keep kids busy, There were day camps, during which they were entertained and educated with art projects, nature walks, and outings to various places. Ed Ray drove groups of kids to and from the program using a yellow school bus from the Dairyland Elementary School. The program was scheduled to end on the 16th of July, but the kids loved it so much they petitioned to have it extended to the end of the month, even convincing their beloved bus driver Ed to sign the petition. July 15, 1976 was a typically sunny and hot summer day, 94 degrees Fahrenheit or just over 34 degrees Celsius. 
The 155 kids involved in the program had spent the day at the Chowchilla Fairground swimming pool supervised by teachers, swimming, tossing water balloons, and engaging in other harmless water-related activities. After the day's fun, those overseeing the kids left in their own vehicles or by other means, Ed Ray and other bus drivers piled the kids into school buses to be driven home sometime after 3 p.m. At around 5 p.m. supper time, when some of the children had not yet returned home, their families took notice and began to worry. Phone calls were made from house to house inquiring if anyone had seen the other's kids. They had not. Joan Brown, a mum of one of the kids, called Ed Ray's place, but no one answered. She then called Leroy Tatum, the school superintendent at the Dairyland School. Tatum's wife, Delma, said that her husband presumed the bus had broken down along their expected route. The policy was that the driver would stay with the kids in this event, so Mr. Tatum had gone out to drive the route and figure out what had happened. Other parents called the school and were told the same thing. Some wondered whether Ed had suffered some kind of medical emergency and the bus had crashed. Every scenario possible was considered. Tatum and another bus driver split up in separate vehicles, checked the usual route, all 53 miles, 85 kilometers of it, as well as side roads. There was no sign of the bus or its occupants. This was odd, as the area's landscape was such that a big yellow bus parked along the road would have stood out like a sore thumb. 14-year-old Mike Marshall's mom, Carol, was angry when her son had yet to arrive home by 5.45 p.m. She recalled an argument she'd had with him that morning and thought maybe he did not come home just to spite her. They were planning a trip to Calgary, Alberta that Sunday for the stampede where Mike's dad had already taken a significant lead in the annual World Championship Steer Wrestling Competition. Carol drove around in her pickup for a while looking for Mike at his usual haunts, but there was no sign of him. It was sometime after 6 p.m. when she called the Dairyland School and was told by the school secretary, Anita Hansen, we've lost a bus. That's a moment you don't want to hear. No. And this part of the story hits hard for me because a good friend of mine uh, who grew up in South Africa mm-hmm. was on his school bus uh, with his brother, yep. his little brother and the rest of his schoolmates. And um, he and I have spoken about this um, and it affected him uh, for the rest of his life. The bus went off a bridge and plunged into the river. Oh my God. And actually many of his classmates, including his brother, didn't make it out alive. Oh, no. I know. And so, you know, he lived one of those horror scenes in a movie in a bus filled with water trying to get out, right? And, you know, obviously it had this uh, a massive effect on his life, but he's he's like the most wonder one of the most wonderful people I know. And he he actually eventually became a counselor who helps people overcome trauma and related alcohol and drug abuse, um, which people with deep trauma used to self-medicate so so was he somebody who ended up self-medicating himself and was indeed yeah and then got out of it and Mm -hmm. um became a counselor at this point you know i'm thinking in the story here i think you know thinking of that the fear that would be setting in with the families yeah i think most people you know if 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 you're told you've lost a bus you're not going to think kidnapping the first thing you're going to think is crash Mm -hmm. right yep Soon afterward, Tatum called for help and local police were dispatched to help in the search for the missing bus. Searchers took to the air before 7 p.m. in a single-engine Cessna. Sometime early that evening, the bus was found. 
empty. Local police sergeant Cooley discovered it in a dry riverbed around 150 feet, 45 meters, off Avenue 21 between roads 15 and 16. The bus had been deliberately well hidden in a mass of bamboo reeds. Cooley was initially frustrated with himself as he'd driven by this area several times throughout the search but had missed the bus until a closer look on foot. Nothing was aboard the bus to indicate what had become of Ed Ray and the children, just items typical of a school outing. Art supplies, some clothing and towels, still damp from the kids drying off after their swim. Parents were horrified after hearing that the bus had been discovered without their children present. Where on earth were they? They'd seemingly vanished into thin air. Wild speculations flew, including kidnapping. More than one thought, perhaps even aliens were involved. According to a Vox.com article, an unidentified state trooper's wife said, quote, we thought it was UFOs and it seemed like it had to be. No way it could be anything else, end quote. Many parents feared they would never see their kids again. Were they already dead at the hands of some monster, human or otherwise? Uh, just going back to the state trooper's wife, no mm -hmm. way could it be anything else. Yeah. I, I wish I had that much faith in humanity. <laughs> Well, we know we know a bit more now than we did in the 70s. Humanity keeps proving us wrong. It's always mm. people. <laughs> yeah. To me, that's a bit of denial. It's like, okay, let's put it on to something completely improbable because, you know, you don't want to believe that anybody is capable of taking 26 children and a school bus driver. You just yeah. don't, like, the thought of somebody actually coming up with that is horrific. Yeah, she was in denial. Denial's a river in Egypt. Denial is not just a river in Egypt. <laughs> After the bus's discovery, a command post was established at the local police station, with members of various law enforcement entities quickly arriving to lend a hand in the search for the kids. As well as local police, the California Highway Patrol, the County Fish and Game Department, and the FBI were involved. Worried parents gathered at the local fire hall. The weather hampered search efforts. It had begun to rain hard with thunder and lightning. But this didn't deter many volunteers arriving who wished to help find Ed and the kids. Not all the children who'd started from the pool on Ed's bus were missing. Ed had successfully dropped off a few of them at their homes. One, Nancy Tripp, told police that she'd seen a white van closely following the bus before she was dropped off at home. This matched with some of the evidence gathered at the site of the bus's discovery. Investigators noted tire tracks, possibly from a heavy-laden van nearby. There had been reports of white vans in the area in the days leading up to the bus going missing. A white 1971 Dodge and a black van were noticed by a woman who was compelled to write down the license plate of the white van and then call police. The vans were parked just off Highway 152 and 15 miles 24 kilometers from Chowchilla. The white van had the license plate number... 1C91414. The officer who'd taken the call days before had initially dismissed the report. After hearing about the tire tracks found close to the bus and Nancy Tripp's report of a white van, he went through his notes and passed them along to investigators. As records were kept manually at the time, Investigators had to search by hand at the California Department of Motor Vehicles in Sacramento to ascertain the sale details of that van including the time, place, and purchaser. It was determined that the original registration San Jose name and address had been faked. This was a huge red flag. 
an APB was issued to stop and search white vans seen driving in the area. Authorities felt this could be a good lead, but they had to find the right van or vans. That would take some time. Parents, concerned locals, and news organizations spent so much time calling police with tips, offers of assistance, and inquiries for information that the phone began to ring busy almost constantly for the next day. The phone company began working to expand service to the police station. Not a single call could get through in the town, but this whole process would take precious time. On learning of the desperate situation in Chowchilla, President Gerald Ford committed significant FBI resources to the search, sending 45 agents from all over the country and as far away as Washington, D.C. to assist. The searches on the ground and in the air continued throughout the night. Members of the families of the missing later related stories of how hard they prayed for the safe return of Ed Ray and the 26 children. Newspapers covered the search extensively, and journalists from numerous news organizations descended on the typically quiet little town. Locals were incensed when one out-of-town news reporter asked whether the people thought Ed was involved. That was unthinkable. Edward Ray was a man of high integrity, and there was no way he had done this in their minds. Yeah, you know, locals back up good people in small communities. They do. Um, mm-hmm. Sure, you know, a small community can be hives of gossip, but there there is a, a flip side to them, and, and that is that, uh, you know, you're from a small town, so am I, right? Yeah. They, yeah. they support each other, and they know each other, like, unlike anyone can know each other in a big city, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I grew up in, in Strathroy. I went from nursery school all the way through high school with the same people, right? Me too. Same yep. class. And, and my parents, in fact, went through school with many of my friends' parents. Yep. Right? So mm-hmm. people know each other. Mm-hmm. And um, they would know if Ed was dodgy in any way. That's right. 100%. A Vox.com article described Ed Ray, quote, His nephew, Ronnie Ray, a retired newspaper columnist, describes him this way, quote, he wasn't a tall man, 5'7", 5'8", stout, probably weighed about 200 in his prime, barrel-chested. My family is all built like that. You don't know where our chest stops and our belly begins. That family, like many others in the area, joined the agricultural migration that sent millions from the South and Midwest to the Central Valley seeking farm work in the 20th century, a mass exodus that peaked in the 1930s with the Dust Bowl." End quote. The article goes on to say that Ed Ray was a Californian whose parents were from Oklahoma. He had limited education and struggled with reading and writing. Despite this, he had a knack for numbers. Known for his exceptional strength, Ed was a well-regarded figure in his community. In his youth, he worked in agriculture, transitioning from horses to tractors for cutting alfalfa. He was known for his strong work ethic, often describing tough jobs as his hobby. The Oroville Mercury Register on July 16, 1976, quoted several concerned family members nervously awaiting word of their kids. There must be a logical explanation, said Sam Barletta, worrying about his 12-year-old daughter Lisa. Seems so damn strange I haven't faced reality yet. One woman, who asked to remain anonymous, expressed her thoughts, optimistic about her daughter's strength when facing adversity. I know my daughter. I know she is self-reliant. The woman said, I know she can take care of herself as long as she doesn't panic. The San Francisco Examiner also reported, quote, 
Tears streamed down the face of Linda Van Hoff, whose seven-year-old daughter, Cindy, was among the 26 missing from a school bus. We don't have any idea, she wept. There's no reason for this at all. There's nothing we can do. We're just waiting and praying. Mrs. Van Hoff, whose husband Tom was at her side, was one of a group of parents gathered at the fire station here to await word of the vanished youngsters. They sat throughout the night and morning, sipping coffee and exchanging rumors. But none really knew anything, and it was the uncertainty and fear of the strange situation that marked them all. End quote. William Parker reported his usually punctual eight-year-old daughter Barbara missing after only ten minutes. In a Fresno Bee article, Parker expressed his hopes that the children were okay. Quote, I hope deep in my heart the people who have taken the children will take care of them, he said. I believe there is some kind of political or terrorist group involved in this. That was the thing. No one knew the motive at this point, and there had been no ransom demands issued in any form. So why on earth had someone taken Ed and the kids? When I was uh, reading this this morning, Mike, I, I mm -hmm. found the, the quotes from the parents fascinating. Yeah. Uh, because they actually, they show so clearly how different people handle things differently. Yeah. So you have the logical one, you know, there must be a logical explanation. I just can't figure it out. You have the stoic one. My kid is self-reliant, right? Yep. You have the distraught one. There's nothing we can do in the weeping and, and the speculative, right? I, I believe that some kind of political or terrorist group. Yeah. And, and I think it just goes to show that when people go through traumatic situations like this, no response is wrong. Right. Right. No response is wrong. Um, you deal with it the way you deal with it. And, um, it's like you chose those quotes to show those different perspectives or something. That is exactly why I chose those quotes. <laughs> uh, because uh, it's true. Whenever something big happens, there are as many opinions about what is going on as there are people involved in what's happening. Yeah, and... Yeah, and those quotes really show the spectrum of responses and to the event and, and to the mystery of motive. Mm -hmm. The mystery of why would have to wait. But the location of Ed Ray and the 26 kids from his school bus was revealed almost a full day after their disappearance. In the California Rock and Gravel Quarry near Livermore, California, around 100 miles, 160 kilometers from Chowchilla, a welder was busily repairing some quarry equipment on the afternoon of July 16th. He was startled as a wild-eyed, dirt-covered man dressed in only underwear and socks approached him. A gaggle of children followed the man who said to the welder, I've got a bunch of kids here. We've been kidnapped. The welder knew instantly what the situation was. The story had been all over the news, and he'd just listened to a radio report while eating his lunch. Another quarry worker was summoned to help, and he called the police to inform them of the discovery. Ed was provided coveralls, and the cold, hungry, thirsty, and tired kids were given soda pop. While awaiting the arrival of police officers, Ed tried to call his wife Odessa to let her know that he and everyone else was physically okay. The phone lines in the little town were entirely jammed, and Ed couldn't get through at all. Although they were relatively okay physically, psychological wellness was another matter. The events had terrorized the kids, and it showed on their faces. The Alameda County Sheriff's Department took immediate action to ensure their well-being. Recognizing the need for prompt medical attention, the victims were transported on yet another bus to Santa Rita Jail, the closest facility equipped with a medical team. Upon arrival, 
They were promptly attended to by jail doctors and emergency medical technicians. These healthcare professionals conducted thorough examinations to assess and treat any injuries or health concerns. In addition to medical care, the victims were provided with food and water, ensuring their basic needs were met after their harrowing ordeal. The word of the rescue of all those involved got back to Chowchilla quickly. A reporter first got word and related to the overjoyed crowd of worried loved ones and community members at the fire station. The kids would be home soon. But what had happened? This crazy story continues after a quick break. On February 4th, The Minds of Madness is set to release an investigative four-part series centered on a cold case from nearly four decades ago. At first, it was just, my mom's gone. And then it became, you know, your mom was taken by a bad man. They found video of him killing women. If you'd ever watched any uh, episodes of Breaking Bad, that's exactly what you would see. He buried these 11 women and kept going out there. He made a road going out there. You got this dude saying, hey, I'm going to show your family these pictures. And, like, he's secretly taping her. The cops don't care. We're nothing to them. Dumped her like a piece of garbage, you know? I don't see anything that screams there's two people doing this. I never thought anything was going to come of this case. Ever. Listen to the Minds of Madness series, Who Killed Jennifer, starting February 4th, wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts? Well, when I first opened the script this morning, I thought we were going to be talking about Coachella. Uh, so oh, ex- no. The, I, th- that's the, the concert that happens every year. <laughs> yeah. And, oh. and then, then I was like, damn you, Mike, because you know I hate stories uh, involving kids getting hurt yeah. or murdered because uh, yeah. it's just too emotionally draining. So, but I'm happy the kids made it alive. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, the, this trauma is going to be with them for a long time, I'm sure. And, you know, it. this also reminds me that um, something I did when I was a little kid, probably about a year after this event, uh, which was on the news even in Canada, my school bus driver missed the turn onto our school street and kept going because mm-hmm. obviously she wanted to go around the block and hit the street again. And right. I, I yelled as a joke. We're being kidnapped, and the entire bus in- erupted into screams <laughs> with me oh, laughing, no. of course. <laughs> oh, no. But Mrs. Lang, our bus driver, who was also one of the owners of the bus line, was like, you're not being kidnapped. I just missed the turn. So not <laughs> not to make light of this story, but like I was, I, right. was a pain, I was a pain in the ass child. Well, I mean, it, it shows you how these things sort of get into the consciousness of folks, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 As parents breathed a sigh of relief, the questioning began. Ed Ray said he didn't initially suspect anything amiss when encountering a disabled van blocking the way on the narrow road. Approaching the van with its hood open, Ed slowed down, finding it challenging to navigate the bus past the obstruction. Given the friendly and helpful nature of the Chowchilla community at the time and Ed himself, he decided to stop the bus to see if the van's occupants needed assistance. As he halted the bus and opened the passenger doors to extend help, Ed was suddenly confronted by three men in nylon pantyhose masks, armed with a rifle and handguns, and they swiftly took control of the situation. 
terrifying everybody. Yeah, and, you know, I don't blame Ed. No. For stopping. You know, my grandma actually drove a bus for our high school, and she would have done the same, right? It's small mm-hmm. town. It's small town. You stop and help. Did you ever go on Granny's bus? No, but I was once talking to a girl. Uh, my grandma didn't take shit from any of the kids, and I was yeah. once talking to a girl. She's like, I, I better go, or else my bitch bus driver will give me hell. I'm like, oh, that's my grandma, and she, she burst into tears. Oh, no. Yeah, because she actually said something real to somebody who it mattered to. Uh, This is the thing. Like, people on the internet say whatever they want right now. Yeah. Yeah. But if, yeah, that person would probably react the same way, you know? Yeah, it's, what a bizarre world. I was like, I know my grandma and I don't, I know she doesn't take shit, so don't worry about it. (laughs) So you said you were wondering about something here. Yeah, so... My grandma had a CB radio on her bus, mm-hmm. and um, I was wondering if, you know, maybe there wasn't uh, back then, um, and maybe, uh, I was wondering, like, maybe after this happened, maybe they put CB radios in buses. There was a guy who used to uh, drive the school bus in my hometown. There was only one. <laughs> there was only one. That's how big a town I came from. <laughs> Uh, his name was Walter and he and his wife used to, uh, babysit my sister and I when mom and dad would go on a trip. So, so Walter and Edna would come over and, uh, they would take care of Rachel and I, or we would go to their house. Isn't it funny how we remember the names of our bus drivers? Yours is Walter, mine was Mrs. Lang, right? (laughs) Yeah. So Walter, well, I knew him because we, we had a family familial relationship with them. Walter, I don't believe, had a CB on his bus. So, I mean, if you're in a one-horse town like uh, I came from, then you probably don't need CBs or I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I I don't recall it around my time. And and there was no mention of it being on this particular Uh, bus. These days, the driver and all the kids probably have a phone, so. Exactly. Yeah. There's no need of a CB because (laughs) they all have a telephone. I know my my friend Big Al, who listens to the show, he drives a school bus back in Nova Scotia now. So, uh, shout out to all the school bus drivers, including Big Al Mack. That's his last name, Al Al Mack? No, no. Big Al Okay. He's Big Al. His last name is McGinnis. Okay. So he's got the most Canadian name ever. Al McGinnis. Well, also a hockey player is named Al McGinnis, but he's not the same person. My father's name was Al as well. There you go. Ed continued to relate his harrowing tale. One man held a gun on him, and the vans, now there were two, one that was faking broken down and the one that had been following them, followed them. As the children wept and wailed with fear, they drove to the dry riverbed into the bamboo where Sergeant Cooley later discovered the bus. The bus was halted and the children, along with Ed Ray, were forced by the three armed men to board into vans with the windows painted black, obscuring both the view from the inside and the outside. On a sweltering day with temperatures exceeding 100 degrees, the children faced discomfort as they had to relieve themselves in the cramped space. As time passed, they became increasingly hungry and sick, with the heat intensifying the unpleasant odors inside the vans. Dehydration and illness added to their distress, and uncertainty loomed over what would happen next. 
The vans drove for hours and miles, leading Ed to speculate they were either heading to a specific location or the kidnappers were buying time. After a seemingly endless journey, the vans eventually came to a halt. In the dim light of construction lamps, the kidnappers forced the children and Ed out of the vans, which now reeked. Despite pleas for information, the only response from the kidnappers was a stern command to be quiet. The victims, cramped and disoriented, were led out into a quarry. Each child was instructed to provide their name, age, address, and home phone number, and then was stripped of one article of clothing as proof of their capture. All of the information was written on a jack-in-the-box burger wrapper. The kidnappers then escorted the hostages to a hidden moving van buried underground in the quarry, resembling a large coffin, accessible only by a long ladder. The children, under threat, were directed to climb down into this dark, dusty van. After the last child descended, the kidnappers removed the ladder, sealed the entrance, and left, trapping Ed and the children inside. In the cramped moving van, the hostages found meager provisions, a small supply of old cereal, peanut butter, bread, and water, offering little relief from their hunger. The space with dirty mattresses and a basic toilet hinted at prolonged captivity. Ventilation fans, initially installed, failed, leading to a stifling atmosphere filled with odors and fumes of children who still had to relieve themselves, as normal children do. Overcome by sickness and despair, Ed and the children faced worsening conditions, fearing they might never be rescued from this underground cell. Yeah, that is so dangerous. It could have mm-hmm. gone it could have gone badly quickly. Badly R- quickly? Badly quickly. Quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember back in the UK I'd occasionally see stories where um illegal immigrants in the backs of lorries were found dead because there wasn't right. enough, enough air and mm-hmm. and that fan wasn't working and these guys aren't experts on how much 27 no. people need for air you know they they, they were twits is what they, could, they were they could have died mm-hmm. they could have all suffocated yeah so lucky yeah yeah these perpetrators were not as uh smart as they thought they were or just or also just didn't care for me it's like all of these things taken together, whether or not it's dangerous, the impact that it would have on you as a child, even a grown man like Ed Ray, yeah. the psychological impact, you're stuck in there, it's smelly, you don't have any food, You th- it looks like, oh my gosh, we're going to be here a long time. Are they ever going to come back? Are they ever going to let us out? Yeah. Like right away, your brain would be like, we are, like, we're screwed. Yeah, that stuff would stick with you for the rest of your life. It did. Depending on the person. You know, some people, people are built differently, right? Well, some people don't recognize psychic wounds like others, Mm. and they manifest. Trauma happens regardless of whether we're capable of handling it or not. It's happened. How we deal with it sometimes isn't even a choice. It's just how we're... We're formulated. I'm the type of person, I'm fine. <laughs> no need right. to think about it, right? <laughs> but you're clearly not. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Overcome by exhaustion, sickness, and panic, the younger children watched as Ed and the older children, led by 14-year-old Mike Marshall, devised a desperate escape plan from their underground cell. They noticed a removable metal panel on the van ceiling, potentially their only escape route. 
stacking dirty mattresses beneath the panel, they worked together to reach it, only to discover a heavy truck battery and dirt blocking it. Undeterred, Ed and Mike strained to dislodge the panel, eventually making progress and starting to dig through the dirt above. At one point, there was concern that the whole roof was going to collapse in on them. As they dug, the younger children either watched anxiously or hid, fearing the kidnappers' return and possible violent repercussions for their escape attempts. Despite the risk, Ed and Mike persevered, breaking through to the surface covered in dirt. They then helped the younger children climb out one by one through the escape panel. Finally, after enduring hours of torment, illness, and fear, all the hostages emerged to freedom. Descriptions were given of the three kidnappers, and composite drawings were made. Around 4 a.m., the Greyhound bus arrived behind the police station in Chowchilla, greeted by cheers, flashing cameras, and a flurry of media activity as parents eagerly reunited with their children. Odessa was there, too, to meet Ed, who gave a brief statement. He said, quote, We was ordered down into this van buried in the rock. They gave us a flashlight. It was dark down there. All we had to eat was a couple bags of tater chips and Cheerios. They put a couple of mattresses and box springs in there for us to sit on. We took the flashlight and shined it around. Me and a couple of the older kids figured the only way out was the way we came in, but we didn't have no ladder. We stacked up those mattresses and box springs to reach the hole. They'd put a piece of plywood over the hole. We tried to push it off. It was too heavy, but we could tell there was some dirt showing around the edges. Everyone was grateful for Ed's bravery. The FBI quickly focused their investigation on 24-year-old Frederick Newhall Woods IV. Frederick was the son of Frederick Nickerson Woods III, who owned the California rock and gravel quarry where the victims had freed themselves after their harrowing day of underground imprisonment. The investigation revealed that the younger Woods not only had keys to the quarry, but also enjoyed unrestricted access and the liberty to use its facilities as he pleased. This access raised suspicions about his potential involvement in the crime. Further deepening these suspicions, the FBI found that Woods, along with two acquaintances, brothers James and Richard Schoenfeld, ages 24 and 22 respectively, sons of a well-known podiatrist, had a criminal history together. They had previously faced legal consequences for motor vehicle theft and had been sentenced to probation. This background in criminal activity suggested a propensity for unlawful behavior, making them prime suspects in the kidnapping investigation. The Woods family was affluent and well-known. According to Vox.com, Henry Mayo Newhall, an ancestor of Frederick Newhall Woods IV, made a fortune in California from land and railroad ventures starting in 1850, leading to the formation of the Newhall Land and Farming Company. By 1976, this family business was highly lucrative, involved in ranching, oil and land, contributing to the development of Santa Clarita and Valencia, with Newhall named after him. Frederick Newhall Woods IV's father owned a large estate in Portola Valley where he lived with his wife and mother, while Fred IV resided in a separate apartment in a garage on the property. The FBI executed a search warrant at the Woods estate in Portola Valley, uncovering crucial evidence in Frederick Woods IV's room, including a ransom note draft, maps, plans, receipts for vans, false IDs, a gun from the kidnapping, and a list of the children's names on a burger wrapper. 
They also found a rental contract for a storage facility where the vans and a camouflaged Cadillac used in the kidnapping were located. Following these discoveries, arrest warrants were used for Frederick Woods and the Schoenfeld brothers. Richard Schoenfeld surrendered shortly after, followed by James Schoenfeld's arrest in Menlo Park and Frederick Woods' capture in Vancouver by the RCMP. According to the Vancouver Sun's Dave Stockend, the man calling himself Ralph Snyder, later revealed as Frederick Newhall Woods IV, the fugitive involved in the Chowchilla kidnapping, was initially perceived as a simple, unassuming figure. His unmasking caused astonishment, with many describing him as naive and easily influenced. Woods was seen as unusually pleasant, almost over-eager to please at the Vancouver hotels where he stayed, and paid a week's rent in advance. His demeanor didn't raise suspicions. He was quiet, often watching TV in the lobby, and had moved from a $42 a week room to a cheaper $30 a week one with basic amenities. Woods, under the alias of Ralph Snyder from Reno, Nevada, didn't attract much attention. He occasionally wore cowboy attire, which confused some hotel staff. His interaction with a young blonde woman was noted as out of character for him. He typically kept to himself. When Woods was escorted back to the hotel by police, he appeared cheerful yet sheepish, surprising those who didn't expect him to be involved in a major crime. Woods had inquired about odd jobs despite his low-key presence, possibly indicating financial constraints. He had registered at both hotels under his alias and seemed to avoid watching the news, preferring shows like, like old FBI series reruns. Fred Woods, who was the mastermind of the plan, had partially been inspired to take the school bus full of kids by the 1971 film Dirty Harry starring Clint Eastwood. In this movie, a psychotic criminal named Scorpio hijacks a school bus filled with children. From CBS News, James Schoenfeld became the first kidnapper to explain the motive for the three rich kids to hijack a school bus. He said, Despite their parents' wealth, that both he and Fred Woods had run up serious debts. He explained, quote, We needed multiple victims to get multiple millions, and we picked children because children are precious. The state would be willing to pay ransom for them, and they don't fight back. They're vulnerable. They will mind, end quote. So all of this because some spoiled rich boys needed some money. Yep, and they were bored. Idiots. And the state might not have. I mean, there's policies. States have policies of not paying ransom. It depends on where you are. A lot of states have policies because they're like, no, because if we pay a ransom, I mean, it's horrible, but if you pay a ransom, then it's going to just provoke more people to do it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the FBI was suggesting in this case, but because there were... I've told Justin if he's ever kidnapped that there'd be, I'd, I'd not pay any ransom. <laughs> it's because you're cheap. Because I'm broke and also um, <laughs> I don't want to provoke then Steve being kidnapped. Well, they hadn't actually issued any... Uh, demands. And as we mentioned, on July 16th, the Chowchilla's police department's phone lines, as well as the phone lines all throughout town, were overwhelmed with calls from the media and worried families following the kidnapping incident. And this influx of calls inadvertently prevented the kidnappers from communicating their $5 million ransom demand. They kept calling and calling and calling, and they couldn't get through. The phone lines were down. So planning to try again later, the kidnappers fell asleep, 
and upon waking later that evening, they discovered from television news reports that the victims had managed to escape and were safe. So, in the end, a nap had done them in. The old saying, you snooze, you lose. Right. Uh, it's true. I mean, poor planning and a nap. Again, this, this just shows... Sounds like my life. <laughs> Aw. Poor planning and a nap. <laughs> Matthew's autobiography. <laughs> Trademark, Dark Routine, 2024. Oh, boy. The three were initially charged with 45 counts each of kidnapping, kidnapping with bodily harm, and robbery. Faced with the evidence of their crime, which included detailed, although sometimes coded, notebooks of their year-long planning of the crime, all three men pleaded guilty. The perpetrators admitted guilt to the charges of kidnapping for ransom and robbery, but declined to plead guilty to causing bodily harm. This was because a conviction for bodily harm, combined with the kidnapping charge, would result in a life sentence without parole. They were tried and found guilty of the bodily harm charge and received the mandatory life sentence. However, an appellate court later overturned these convictions, ruling that the physical injuries, primarily cuts and bruises, suffered by the children did not constitute bodily harm as defined by the law. Consequently, they were resentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole. So I guess psychological injury doesn't count. Well, at least back in those days it didn't. Again from CBS News. While in prison early on, Fred Woods wrote a friend about writing a possible film script about the story. He said, quote, I think it would make a damn good movie of the week if not a feature. It's big, real big, and a hot item everybody wants to know about. Woods adds, if you do make it into a film, all I want is a percent of it. This guy has no remorse, and again, about money. Well, he continued to make money while he was in jail, which is interesting. Uh, in 2016, a lawsuit related to workers' compensation exposed that Frederick Woods, despite being incarcerated, was clandestinely operating multiple businesses, including a gold mine and a car dealership, without informing prison officials. Woods had access to a substantial trust fund from his parents. One court document estimated the trust fund's value at around $100 million. This figure was contested by Woods' attorney. The kidnapping victims were, of course, involved as plaintiffs in this suit. Why the hell would his family not take away the trust fund? That is a very good question, Matthew. I could go on here. I'm not going to rant. But what is it with the super rich? It seems like the longer I live, the more I realize that the super rich have no soul left after their thirst for money and power. Yeah. Right? And, and you know, these families... I. God, I, I think in your research you couldn't you couldn't figure out if they've successfully sued, but you know obviously the only thing that this guy cares about is money, so that hopefully they hit they hit him where it hurt. Yeah, well, absolutely they did. I mean, the kidnappers' only public comments on the case, according to ABC News, ABC thirty dot com, these were taken twenty years before the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. Jim Schoenfeld said, I'm very sorry, deeply sorry for what I've done. Rick Schoenfeld said, I was immature, I was the follower, and I made an extremely stupid decision here. And Woods said, 
it was just a lot of pain and suffering we put everybody through that didn't realize we were doing at the time, but now I just hope that everyone is going on with their lives. Everything can be somewhat back to normal. I don't give a crap what either of them, any of them, I have to say. No. It's like, Woods is just so dismissive. I know. Well, you know, we put them through it, but hopefully they're just getting back to normal. Screw you. Ugh. Richard Schoenfeld, who was 22 at the time of the Chowchilla kidnapping, was released on parole in 2012, when he was 57 years old. James Schoenfeld, who was 24 during the kidnapping, was granted parole in 2015 at the age of 63. Frederick Newhall Woods IV, also 24 at the time of the crime, had his parole repeatedly denied until August 2022, when he was finally granted full parole at the age of 70. A study, titled Children of Chowchilla, A Study of Psychic Trauma by Lenore C. Terror, published in 1979's The Psychoanalytic Study of the Child, gave insight into the impact the kidnapping had on the children. The children's long-term reactions were varied, with each child affected by the traumatic event. They developed persistent fears, manifested unconscious anxiety in play and behavior, showed changes in cognitive functioning, and experienced lasting personality changes. The study emphasized the destruction of trust in these children, their fear of mundane or ordinary experiences, and panic attacks triggered by stimuli associated with the original trauma. The study discusses the pre-existing problems in the children, such as emotional disorders and unrecognized emotional disturbances, highlighting how these issues influenced their responses to the trauma of kidnapping. The children developed intense fears related to the possibility of another kidnapping, including worries about a fourth kidnapper, fears regarding the kidnappers in jail returning, and concerns about an unrelated second kidnapping. Many children also develop fears about ordinary experiences like vehicles, darkness, wind, and hippies, perceiving these as signals of impending danger. Ordinary experience of hippies. Well, hippies. these guys, like, uh, if, if you look at pictures of Fred Woods, for example, he was a bit of a long hair, and he was, yeah. he was a hippy-dippy dressed kind of... First of all, guy. yeah, maybe, but the two rich should be hippies. And oh my god, I mean, I, I have, I have a loathing for tie dye, so, so maybe I fit in here. <laughs> oh boy, panic attacks triggered by mundane stimuli were common, demonstrating the depth of the children's anxiety and the lasting impact of the traumatic event. A significant theme in the study is the destruction of trust. The kidnapping shattered the children's basic trust in the world, leaving them constantly on guard and unable to fully trust again, even with parental reassurance. Regarding treatment, brief therapies showed noticeable improvements in some children through abreaction and understanding attained via interpretation or clarification. However, there was a notable lack of pursuit for long-term psychiatric help by the parents. Terror's study also puts forward proposals for responding to disasters, emphasizing the crucial role of community mental health workers engaging with families during the waiting period of a disaster and advocating for the immediate psychological evaluation of victims. Terror provides a comprehensive view of the psychological aftermath of the Chowchilla kidnapping and the long-term effects on the children and their families.
On James Schoenfeld's 2015 release, a few survivors spoke to People magazine about their feelings. Darla Neal, who was 10 years old during the kidnapping, revealed that she was still experiencing nightmares about having a gun pointed at her head. She explained that the kidnapping significantly impacted her family's life and even affected her children. The idea of the kidnappers being released caused her great anxiety, and she felt secure only when they were imprisoned. Irene Correo was 12 years old at the time of the kidnapping and expressed disappointment with the criminal justice system. She pointed out the disparity between the severity of the crime, which endangered 27 lives, and the fact that the perpetrators did not serve a whole life sentence for each life they put at risk. Before Edward Ray died in 2012, as he lay sick, many of the children, now grown, and their families, visited him to pay their respects to their local hero. Oh, that's quite beautiful, actually. Yeah. There would have been a strong bond, I think, between these people having gone through all of this together. Absolutely. We talked a bit off air about it, how Ed was the only adult. You know, of course they're going to make him the hero. Uh, I, I think Mike Marshall, who was really prevalent in the documentary that I watched on CNN, I think he he deserves a lot of props for stepping up the way he did, you know? And, and he's quite a, you can tell, watching it, you really should watch that CNN documentary. It's called Chowchilla, and it expands on what we've just told you and uh, includes interviews with a few of the children who went through the ordeal, including Mike Marshall, who helped Ed Ray with their ultimate escape. And just so you know, at the city council meeting on January 27, 2015, Chowchilla officials renamed the well-known sports and leisure park to honor Edward Ray. This park, a youth sports and family gatherings hub, aligns with Ed Ray's enduring legacy. The formal dedication ceremony was held on Thursday, February 26th at 4 p.m. at the park at the intersection of 15th Street and Sonoma Avenue, and the event saw a significant turnout from the community, city officials, and the Ray family who gathered to witness the unveiling of the new signage, marking it as Edward Ray Park. Also, the city has made Ed's birthday, February 26th, Edward Ray Day, to honor him further. And Edward Ray's heroism was memorialized by Kent Morrill, singer, in his 1976 tune, The Ballad of Chowchilla Ray, for Bardell Records, and then it was covered by even more famous crooner, Robert Goulet. Ed, Ed has a bit of a legacy. His family must be proud. They should be, yeah. And that is it for Dark Poutine episode 303, Terror on the School Bus, the Chowchilla Kidnapping. That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Well, we only had one call this week, which is okay, and it was from somebody who's already called us. Let's ha- let's have a listen. Hey, so this is Maddie calling back because I heard what you had for my occupation. I just got to say, you're like 50% there. 
kind of made me laugh because I haven't drank in years and don't go to White Ave at all. Definitely don't own a bar there. But I do quality, so inspecting bathtubs isn't too far off. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> uh, see, there you go. I'm, I am the oracle. <laughs> Matthew is the oracle, the psychic of people's jobs. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I like that when that happens. Thanks anyway, for calling back, Maddie. Thank you. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 327 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Alrighty, so it looks like we don't have any patrons or donut money donors this week, but that's fine. <laughs> it's probably because they heard that I say to pastry chefs that I want to eat their love. Oh. So embarrassing. Well, yeah, but it, the, <laughs> taken out of context, that's embarrassing. But in the context that you said it, you said uh, you you asked if you bake with anger or love and that you would rather eat their love. And then you had to clarify telling the lady that you were gay. I want to eat your love. Not appropriate. We were laughing our asses off. That was Aww. so funny. Well, there you go. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Well, there you have it. That is it for this episode of Dark Poutine, and we hope you come back next time. We have more episodes planned. It's going to be a fantastic show. It is. Anyway, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye.